Uh, we went through it as a care group, and uh, it was quite enjoyable to do as a study. Uh, there were some short lectures and a study guide that went with it and gave us a lot of new insights into uh, the story. And I recommend that if you're a care group, you would like to do that, we can give you the resources. Of course, Bunyan's portrayal of the Christian life is that of someone who is on a journey. That's why it's referred to as the progress of a pilgrim. A pilgrim is someone who is living for another place and another time, and he is on his way there. That imagery in Bunyan's allegory is not really unique to him at all. In fact, it's interesting when you read Puritan literature to note uh, that the writings and sermons of that era, are uh, they're just filled with the Christian life being typically portrayed in one of two ways. Often you encounter writings that depict what we are doing as warfare. Bunyan actually wrote another book entitled The Holy War, uh, and that was a major emphasis in a number of Puritan writings. But the other is this concept of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. And there are many portrayals of that, although Bunyan's happens to be the most widely read and uh, distributed of them all. But that was published nearly 350 years ago. And I think it's much more difficult for us in uh, the Western Hemisphere to identify with the idea that we are going through this life as pilgrims. Our main difficulty, I think, is probably due to the fact that in industrialized countries like Australia, we pretty much have our heaven already. Uh, I mean, you don't have to travel very far outside of our borders to be struck by the fact there are few people in this world who can match our possessions and our ease of living. Uh, that is true among most industrialized nations. Just take a step into our northern neighbors of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea or any one of the Pacific Islands to the northeast, and you can very quickly see the difference. Even if you go somewhere like Europe, outside the major cities, it's not that easy to find a good place to eat or five-star hotels or some of the common luxuries that you find in cities like Sydney. Of course, when you get into some of those third world nations like Sudan or Somalia or Vietnam, you really are appalled at the conditions in which the majority of the world still lives. I think that raises the question about the relationship that believers are supposed to have with the world. And in light of our study in Revelation, I do want to raise that question this morning. In fact, I want this to remain in our minds as we deal with these last two chapters of the book. And it's the question of God's intention when it comes to our viewpoint of life here on this earth. I mean, there are many possibilities, there are many perspectives, and we know that God has given us this creation with many pleasures attached to it. 
even have a book like Ecclesiastes that encourages us to enjoy the things that God has given to us. So with that in mind, is the imagery of the Christian life being a pilgrimage from the city of destruction to the celestial city, is that imagery overdone in books like Pilgrim's Progress? Is it actually being exaggerated beyond the biblical emphasis? That's the question that I would like to raise, and I'm trusting that the Lord will use uh, what we do over the next few messages in these chapters uh, to help us arrive at some solid conclusions that will really, I hope, infect our current values. Let's read the first eight verses of chapter 21 together. This is a, uh, an introductory section to these two chapters where we are introduced to the components of what is to come in the future. And you should know, uh, by the way, that these two chapters are the most complete revelation of heaven that we have in the Bible. Of course, there are a great many questions that we have about the afterlife uh, and the state of our existence in the presence of God, and it might seem strange uh, to us that Scripture doesn't give more descriptions of heaven. We simply don't get all of the details uh, that we would like to have. But I make that point in order to set the stage for what we are going to read, because in a biblical context of God reserving the last two chapters of His Word to convey the vast majority of what heaven will be like, in that context, every detail that He gives must be significant for us. So let's read these first eight verses and just note the things that God has decided to tell us. Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars 
shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Everything in Revelation 21 and 22 is really encapsulated by that little short expression in verse 5, I make all things new. In other words, what we're going to study in these two chapters uh, is God's new creation. If you stop and think about the Bible for a moment, you realize that it opens with two chapters describing the making of the first and original creation, the one that we're living in now. But then it concludes with two chapters describing the new, second, final creation. And this means that not only the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible is pointing ahead to these two chapters. Our first parents, the originators of our race, forfeited paradise. And we are all experiencing the dreadful effects of the fall. But from the very beginning, God has been preparing for a completely new creation. And in that creation, there will be people who are fitted for it. And these two chapters are given to us so that we will anticipate that. And we will have a sure hope of what awaits us there. I want to begin by pointing out a general survey of what we have here, and it's very simple. In verses 1 to 8, the paragraph that we just read, we have a kind of introductory survey of the whole of God's new creation. We'll come back to these verses in just a moment. But one of the components of that new creation is a holy city, referred to in verse 2, the New Jerusalem. If you look at verse 9, John writes that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, which we, we talked about earlier in the series, came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then in verses 10 and following, he shows John that city. And that description then occupies the rest of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. If you look at the end of that section in verse 5, you'll see that the whole description of that city ends with a revelation concerning what will light it. Uh, we are told that there will not be any more light. We won't need the light of a lamp. We won't need the light of the sun because it says the Lord God will give them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And that's where the description of the city and its citizens ends. Following that, the remainder of the section consists of various applications. In other words, if these things are true, if this is what God's creation is really like, if this is the nature of that city, then there are applications for people to continue to live in this creation. There's a number of invitations issued to them, to us. In fact, the whole Biblical revelation ends with a series of invitations for people to enter, uh, to come, uh, to be prepared for this. And it's all suggestive of how we should be living in this life as a pilgrim who is passing through. But that's really all we have in these two chapters. You have the survey, verses 1 to 8. Then you have this more lengthy description of the city itself, 
and then these applications and invitations at the end. This is what we have before us in order to finish this series. And again, the whole subject matter appears to be encapsulated by that phrase in verse 5, I make all things new. So this is God's new creation. Let's begin today in verses 1 to 2 with the components of that new creation. And there are three of them, and they're very easily seen in the passage. In verse 1, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's important to know that what this actually means has been debated for many centuries. Here are the two basic possibilities that good conservative people hold. The first is that God is actually replacing the present earth and the present heavens. So he's making something that is entirely fresh. The other possibility is that he is renovating the present heavens and the present earth, and in that sense, he is transforming them and making them new. Now, there is somewhat of a precedent for that second view. For example, if you consider the resurrection body, or the bodies in which we're going to live in God's new creation, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 explains that, that we're actually going to live in the bodies that we have right now. Uh, they'll be same in their identity. We're going to recognize each other, although they will not be the same in their nature. Uh, in fact, when you read the description on what these bodies are going to be like, it's a little bit concerning because there is such a change. And some of us are like, yeah, I get, my body can be different. And others are like, I kind of like my body as it is. Well, <laughs> it is going to change in its nature quite dramatically. Uh, but my point is that there is a precedent set for God making something new in the sense of totally uh, transforming it. It's the same thing, but altered. It's upgraded. It's, it's renovated. You know, like those reality shows that take an aging house that's broken down, and you look at it like, oh. And when they're done, like, wow, it's a new house, right? It's not. It's the same house, but it looks brand new. So, renovation. But when it comes to this interpretation, rather than speculate, I do want to give you a series of references that, in my opinion, really settle the issue. You don't need to turn to them. You can read them on the screen and listen to the language, and then you can decide for yourself. These new heavens and this new earth are first spoken of in that kind of language at the end of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 65, verse 17, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And note this, the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, if you can believe that. In other words, it's something so dramatically different that's going to take place. You're not even going to remember the present earth and the heavens in which you now live. In 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11, God says that the heavens will pass away with the great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And verse 11 talks about them being dissolved. They'll be destroyed in this way. And the language uh, of passing away and burning up and being dissolved really uh, 
suggests only one of those two interpretations about what it means when God says, I will make new heavens and a new earth. In Hebrews 1, 10 and 11, the writer says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, talking about this present earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, you remember this throne scene where all unredeemed people will one day stand before the Lord, and it talks about God uh, taking his seat on the throne, and then it says, from whose face, from whose presence, the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, all of that language really seems to make the point that these new heavens and earth will be entirely fresh. And since that's the case, we have absolutely no idea of what they're going to look like in their appearance. Uh, I mean, will, will the earth be a globe like we have now? Or will it be a flat expanse of space? Proving that flat earthers are actually prophetic. <laughs> uh, will it be rectangular? Will it be a triangle? Will it be like a pyramid? Well, you know, is it going to be you know, four, five, six, seven dimensions? Well, we don't know. But it will be an entirely new heaven and a brand new, fresh earth. Now, the universe one on that new earth is going to be the conspicuous absence of something that many of us living in a coastal city do enjoy. In fact, our family enjoyed it this past weekend. I hate to say it, but there's not going to be any sea anymore. Yeah, I know. That's disappointing, isn't it? No sea. Now, of course, you may wonder, as I have, why is this particular feature picked out? There's no doubt there will be many things in this new heavens and new earth uh, that, are, that are not present now. It's not here. So why is this one given to us to know about? Well, the Scripture doesn't explain why, unfortunately. But I do want to make two comments from Scripture that may be helpful to us. Number one, in the Genesis account of the first creation, it says that on day two, God created the heavens, and on day three, he created the earth. And then it says that he gathered all the waters together and called them the sea. Never since then, when Scripture speaks of the entirety of God's creation, even though the sea is located on the earth and it covers 75% of its surface area, the Bible separates it out. So that you have regular references to God creating the earth, the sky, and the sea and all that dwell in them. So basically, God is telling us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be that third dimension. It's just not going to be there, and no sea. Secondly, I also want to note the fact that there are times when the ocean or the sea is used in Scripture as an image for the wicked. Uh, you have that in Isaiah 57.20, for example. We all know uh, you know, that the sea is constantly moving. Uh, the tide is either coming in or it's rolling out, and the waves just endlessly lap against the shore. And God uses that fact to illustrate the way that wicked people are restless. They're always dredging up sin and vomiting it out like waves on the seashore. 
And Isaiah 57, 21 ends with God saying, yes, there is no rest. There is no peace to the wicked. That's a common phrase we use today. No rest for the wicked. When we're tired, right? Uh, but they're like the troubled sea. And then, of course, there's biblical imagery of troubled water, like the sea, through which we must all pass and come to uh, a safe harbor. This was Bunyan's imagery when Christian and Hopeful entered that river to pass through the troubled waters to get to the other side. And no doubt, this is the imagery that Simon and Garfunkel had in mind when they wrote the song, Like a Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Please don't sing it in your head the rest of the service. <laughs> but the Bible, uh, you know, doesn't really connect its use of the ocean and that kind of imagery with the fact that it's passing away in the new creation. So basically, we don't really know why there's not going to be any more sea, and we can only speculate. Well, in verse 2, we have an introduction to the third component of that new creation, and it is a city. Now, uh, we saw earlier that a great part of what we have in these two chapters concerns this wonderful city, and we're going to reserve most of our time uh, talking about this city when we come to those passages in the next couple of messages later on. But today, I just want to give a little bit of attention to the central features that are found in verse 2 and try to extract their significance for us today. In the first place, we are told that city's name. Now, there is a city located in the earth right now which carries the same name, uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a term that has the Hebrew word shalom embedded in it. What is shalom? Peace. And the front part of that word is a little hard for Hebrew scholars to agree on, uh, but it may refer to a foundation, so it may mean the foundation of peace, or it may be habitation of peace. But certainly that heavenly city is going to carry a name that has to do with it being a place of shalom a place of peace. Although that is definitely not the case with the earthly Jerusalem today. In 1948, when Israel was made a new state, until 1967, they did not possess the city. But in 1967, they finally took it in the Six-Day War. And every year, they celebrate that with what they call Jerusalem Day. Uh, but the Muslims, you know, and the Armenians who are living in Jerusalem, they count that as a tragedy. And they put up with it, you know, but they just grit their teeth while these celebrations are going on. Well, while I was there, uh, 10 years ago now, I walked around the ancient walls of that city. And to this day, you can see all the bullet holes in those walls from the battles that took place. And some of them are quite large. Um, it's just a city of much trouble. Now, the city today is divided into four quarters. There's the Muslim, the Christian, the Armenian, and the Jewish. And they are not peaceable quarters between themselves. Um, but this is how they maintain a semblance of peace, by designating the city into four parts. In fact, when I was there, uh, you know, the church of the, I think it's the Church of the Sepulchre uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem, which is built into the rock, has a ladder sitting on the top floor outside. And in every picture you have, it's there. Every painting, it's there. 
It's been there for decades. And we asked the guy, but why is there a ladder that's still there? He said, well, that's because they don't know who put it up there. And none of the, you know, the church is run by seven different religions because they've got to share it. And none of them want to take responsibility for it. So it's been sitting there because, you know, the Muslims won't move it, but all the Christians put it there. Christians, we're not going to move it. The Orthodox put it there. So, so no one wants to take responsibility for the latter. And it's just an illustration of how much trouble and division is in the city. It's in that one place. Uh, quite interesting. So it's anything but a city of peace. And when John, you know, had this vision of a new Jerusalem, keep in mind that the old Jerusalem had lain in ruins since the Romans destroyed it about 25 years earlier. So you can imagine the hope this would have given to John and to those first century readers. Of course, this is not the same Jerusalem, uh, which is on the old earth, but there is a city in the new earth that is going to be called by that name. And it truly will be characterized by that peaceful condition. And uh, there is a reason why it's going to be peaceful in verse 2, when it tells you the nature or the character of that city. What's the word in that verse that tells us why it's going to be a place of peace? Because it is a holy city. And that takes us back to what Isaiah 57 said, which says that there is no peace to wicked people. Uh, but you see, in that city, there's not going to be any wicked people. So with that character of holiness, it will therefore be a place that possesses shalom. Now, where is that city going to originate? We are told here that you're not going to find it on this earth, and you're not going to be able to go searching anywhere to find those conditions here because there's not a city on this earth uh, even in a country like ours that can be characterized as a Jerusalem and a holy city this one has to come directly from God out of heaven and undoubtedly that is what the Lord meant in John 14 when he said to his disciples I go to prepare a place well, this is the place that is being prepared. It is under construction, as it were. But I think what is most suggestive and beautiful about this city is at the end of the verse where it says that in appearance, this city is being prepared like an adorned bride. Now, there are times when this building has been altered enough in its appearance that anybody coming in knows that a wedding is going to take place. Even the children can tell you, as they look around the room, someone's getting married. Look at the decorations, look at the flowers, and so on. But imagine a whole vast city that looks like it's prepared for a wedding. And that will be that city in that day. Now, in verses 3 and 4, what will be the conditions in God's new creation, and in particular in that city? Well, the most blessed of all conditions is described first in verse 3, which is that God himself is going to tabernacle there with his people. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And dwell is the verb form of the word tabernacle. So the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will tabernacle with them. Now, I wish 
we had the time to go back into the whole background to this promise. But what you realize as you look at these eight verses that is that you've actually arrived at a focal point in biblical revelation that includes many previous prophecies all coming to a head in these verses. In fact, nearly every statement here has a whole train of biblical breadcrumbs coming behind it, preparing the way for this revelation. But instead of looking at detailed background information, I want to just give you a snapshot of what lies behind this particular concept, uh, just in order to magnify it for you this morning. The idea of God tabernacling on earth with people really has its roots in the soil of the Pentateuch. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Verse 3 can be traced to the book of Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, after God brought his people out of Egypt and took them into Sinai and he gave them the law and the sacrificial system. And after that, he says, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And that is a promise that is repeated many times throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Now, as you trace the references, what you discover is that during those 40 years in the wilderness, the people did see a visible sign of the spiritual presence of God with their eyes. What was it? Do you remember? The pillar of cloud during the day, and at night it took the form of a pillar of fire. Right, so none of those people would ever doubt that God was present with them. However, it was clearly a symbol of his spiritual presence. Again, when the tabernacle was constructed in the wilderness, and later, later on when uh, Solomon built his temple, you remember that the glory of God filled those structures. And this was more evidence of his spiritual presence. And these are all partial fulfillments of this promise. It really isn't until you come to the New Testament that this promise takes the substance that you're looking for and you find it in John 1 when John writes that the second person of the Godhead, the Word, took flesh. And the actual wording there is that he tabernacled with us. And John said there isn't any mistake about this being God in flesh because we saw it with our eyes. We saw his glory, he said. So we know that God was tabernacling with us. But of course, after the resurrection, he ascended back to the Father. So what happened next? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus Christ poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And in 2 Corinthians 6, the apostle says, For you, that is the church, you are the temple of the living God, just as God has said. And then he quotes from that same prophecy. Leviticus 26. So what becomes clear is that right through the history of God's people, you have manifestations of the presence of the tabernacling of God. But beginning with the coming of the Son of God in flesh, you have the actual tabernacling of God among his people. And then you have it in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and you have it in his church, which is his temple, his dwelling place. But in the future, in the new creation, you will have the culmination of that when it's the entirety of the Godhead 
all three persons, actually with the Lord's people, not just in a spiritual presence, but within their sight and hearing. Just like John sees the throne. John sees one seated on the throne. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up on a throne. That'll be our experience in that day. And then God at that point will truly be among his people. Probably the most blessed of all the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 is the one that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. That has been known in Christian history as the beatific vision, meaning the blessed sight. And it has been treasured and anticipated by God's people as the greatest of all future experiences. That's why we sing about it. Face to face, I shall behold him. It's the presence of God right with his people in the new creation. Now, there are also going to be some really conspicuous absences as well. And this is the second condition. You have God's own presence, a blessed presence in verse 3, and then blessed absences in verse 4, which says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When was the last time you cried? Crying is such a common experience in this creation. I don't know if you've ever seen a tear bottle before, but archaeologists have found them buried all over Israel because in the ancient world, it was a common practice to catch your tears in a bottle and then place it in a burial tomb as a sign of love and respect for somebody. Now, tear bottles are still sold today. Usually, it's a souvenir or a keepsake in many sizes and designs. But in the ancient world, typically they had a long neck and then like a bulb-shaped bottom at the, uh, at the other end. And when we cry, you know, the tears run down our cheeks and fall from our face in drops that can be collected in a tear bottle. David refers to this in Psalm 56 when he says that the Lord is going to treasure up all his tears in a bottle. Even our Lord himself cried, uh, uh, Hebrews 5, 7 refers to his tears. Shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept after the death of his friend Lazarus in John 11. In fact, life in this world has often been referred to as a veil, V-A-L-E, or a valley of tears, which comes from passages like Psalm 84, 6. We come into the world crying, we go out of this world sighing, and we leave people around our bed who are crying at our passing. In fact, uh, one reason for tears is mentioned in verse 4 is death. It's exactly why Jesus was crying in John 11. Uh, this world is a place where everyone dies. I mean, nobody gets out of it. And along with it comes mourning and crying, and pain. I'm often aware of the fact that people sometimes attend our services here in real pain. You come, maybe you came today, in spite of a lot of physical discomfort. 
people come and they may have headaches, they may have nausea, people like Nancy come, and maybe every part of the body is in pain. Uh, sometimes they come, you know, maybe you have sciatic nerve damage, and just sitting there shoots pain down the side of your leg. But although that's the case, you know, the fact is we are living in a culture today that manages pain pretty well. In fact, it's possible to control it so much that we pass from this existence to the next with just the bare minimum of what has really tortured the vast majority of people in history since the beginning of time. We just happen to be some in the first uh, couple of generations to really be able to control it right up until the point of death. Uh, if you've read a lot of Christian biographies, you'd be aware of the fact that many of them in their journeys regularly refer to their sufferings. In the Journal of Cotton Mather, uh, the early New England preacher, he's just pleading with the Lord to take away his heartburn. If you've ever struggled with that, you know uh, the pressure in your chest, the burning in your throat. Uh, heartburn can be agony, and immediately, you know, you look for something to relieve it. Uh, we have tablets like Gaviscon, you know, that provides instant relief. Well, Mather didn't have Gaviscon in the 17th century, uh, and he's writing in his journal and telling God that if he has another attack of this, it's going to kill him. But perhaps one of the most pathetic accounts of suffering I've read comes from the life of John Newton. Newton, after his conversion, married the love of his life. Her name was Mary Catelet. Uh, I'm sure you know the background of Newton's conversion. Uh, he was a, a, a wicked man. He trafficked in human lives. Uh, he met this girl when she was just 14 years old. That's Olivia's age, my daughter, by the way. He was a couple of years older, and he was quite captivated by her. And uh, even though he lived a very wicked life, he later recorded that it was his constant and undying affection for her that kept him from plunging even into even deeper depravity. Well, after his conversion, he did win her hand in marriage. They had one of the closest of companionships. Newton was employed in Liverpool at the time, and he recounts that before they left Liverpool, his wife experienced some kind of blow to her left breast. When they got into London a short time later, uh, she found a large lump in there. So they went to see a surgeon, but by the time she went, this thing had grown to be the size of half a melon. Well, they had no way to deal with that in 1788. So Newton recounts that by the spring of 1789, he says her pains were almost incessant and often intense. She could seldom lie one hour in her bed in the same position. And then it pleased the Lord that by some alternation which affected her spine, she was completely disabled from moving herself and other circumstances rendered it extremely difficult for anyone else to move her. It has taken five of us nearly two hours to move her from one side of the bed to the other. Now, Newton loved her greatly. From time to time, he agonized in his journal, even before this happened, of the fact that she was the idol of his life, and he loved her 
far more than he did God. So you can imagine the excruciating feelings he had as he watched his wife suffer. Well, it finally came to an end in December of 1790 after two years of this. And his account was that she'd been lying there for three days without seeming to hear or see. And then he says, on Wednesday evening, about 7 p.m., I took my post by her bedside and watched her nearly three hours, a candle in my hand, till I saw her breathe her last on the 15th of December, 1790, a little before 10 in the evening. Newton's experience has been that of untold millions of people. But in the new creation, nobody will ever one time cry like that. It's over. All the pain, the suffering, the agony, and the death, and the separation, and the tears, they're gone. The nature of the new creation is such that it is sheer bliss. If you have any problem imagining that and therefore accepting it as your conviction, look at verse 5, where God gives us the certainty of this. It's not by mistake that this verse follows the almost unbelievable statement about the absence of all those things in God's new creation. It says, then he who sat on the throne, and that suggests to us, of course, that there is a sovereign who superintends these things. Somebody is in control. Somebody is in control of pain and trouble, sorrow and death and crying right now. And the person who oversees all of those things and sits on the throne speaks out now so that you will hear his voice on this matter. He says, behold, I make all things new. I mean, don't doubt verse 4. It's all going to be brand new. And then he said to John, write, for these words are true and faithful. And that is where you have to anchor yourself in the midst of your trouble and your pain. Newton recounted that about two or three months before Mary died, when he says, when I was walking up and down the room, offering disjointed prayers. You ever done that? You ever been in a situation where your prayers are just disjointed because you are just so emotionally and mentally and spiritually confused by your circumstances? I mean, you can hardly pray. You just felt so lost and uncertain. Well, Newton here is pacing up and down and throwing up disjointed prayers from a a heart that is filled with grief. And he says, the thought suddenly struck me with an unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. And he relates that from that point on, he was upheld to an unusual degree. For God wants you to know that His words are faithful and true. You can can count on it. That there is going to be a creation like this. There is going to be an existence like this. 
And you have the possibility of entering it yourself, you and your loved ones. And if you still have doubts, look at verse 6. The one sitting on the throne says to John, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What is done? Verse 5, the making of all things new. You know, this verb to be done, if you're a bit of a scholar, is in the Greek perfect tense, which means that the action is so sure, it is so certain, it is spoken of as already completed, even though it is yet to take place in time. God's words are so faithful, they're so true, nothing He promises will not come to pass. You can take it to the bank. It's emphasized by his title as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha, of course, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. This is a uh, common uh, uh, literary device that we call merismus, which takes two contrasting terms uh, to refer to the whole. In other words, what it's saying is God isn't just the beginning. He's not just the end, but he's everything in the middle as well. He's A through to Z. Don't put it that way. Uh, He's Alpha. He's Omega. He has absolute control over all things. His sovereign control, his eternal nature. That's what guarantees his complete trustworthiness and faithfulness, and truthfulness when it comes to the words that he has spoken. What he starts, he is able to complete. I think one of the commentators put it so well when he wrote, he is the unchangeable one by whom the old was and the new shall be. I like that. That brings us to verses 6 to 8, where now we turn to the citizenry of that new city. In verses 6 and 7, God tells us about the people who are going to inhabit that city and enjoy those blessed conditions. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering if you're going to be among that number, those people are described in those verses in two ways with two attributes. And interestingly enough, both of those attributes are actions. In other words, these are people who right now are active. In the present. So look at verse 6 and find the description of those citizens. Those are people who did what in this life? They thirsted. See that? Now, again, there's a whole background to that expression. And without taking a whole message to go through it, I do want to point out that this goes back in Scripture for centuries. In fact, probably. The most famous of all the Old Testament passages that comes to mind is in Isaiah 55, where God calls out, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's clearly talking about people who sense within themselves something that every single human being has a longing to be entirely satisfied and fulfilled. Of course, people of this world look to things in this present earth 
for satisfaction, and they're always disappointed. In fact, I want to give you a warning today from the Word of God that if you attempt to quench the thirst that God has created in the human heart with anything other than Himself, you will discover that it only makes you an addict for more. You will, you will have a never-ending thirst if you keep chasing after that because the only thing that truly satisfies is God Himself. The Lord Jesus put it this way in another of His Beatitudes when He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. So only something eternal is going to satisfy it. Now it also says that God made all of these things on earth for you to enjoy. Take note of that earlier. But then it ends with the warning that you are going to be held accountable for all of these things. And you do need to remember that your life is but a breath and that man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's just the nature of your life in today's world. Well, blessed are the people who figure out that life on earth is like a vapor. And so they turn their thirst towards righteousness. Because just like the Lord told the woman at the well, if you thirst like that, and if you come to him, he said, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely, without cost without any strings attached. That is beautiful. There's no cost in order to live forever and to be satisfied, truly satisfied. You know, here in this creation, we are prepared to spend everything we have accumulated in this life just to wring out a few more months of it. People will spend all of their superannuation on health care. They will take out another mortgage. They will spend their entire savings just to live a little longer and go from surgery to surgery, from therapy to therapy. That's just the way it is in this life. Satan was right when he said, all the man has, he will give for his skin. But it's against that backdrop in this creation that makes these words stand out so beautifully. Because he offers life, and you don't have to spend all your superannuation to get it. It's free. You get to live forever if you will just thirst. People who thirst and come to Jesus Christ are then described in verse 7 by the second term. What is it? If you're wondering, am I one of these people? First thing to ask yourself is this. Have I turned the appetite that God has put within me towards Jesus Christ, towards God and His righteousness, which is the only thing that will really fill my soul? Have you turned your thirst in that direction? All right? You've come to experience the satisfaction of a new life in Christ, then there is a new creation waiting for you. And in verse 7, you are a person who will overcome. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Now that language comes from chapters 2 and 3 in this book. You may recall that every one of the letters to the seven churches ends with the promise to those who are described as overcomers. 
And it becomes apparent that this language is something that is true for every genuine believer. There's no such thing as a genuine believer who will not be an overcomer. And then Revelation 12 tells you how people overcome. We are told there they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and because they don't love their life even if they face death. In other words, these are people who have such a conviction about another place and another time that they're literally willing to spill their blood here in order to be sure that they get there. And Jesus did say that if you deny him here, he will deny you there. So you can be assured that if you are a genuine Christian and filled with the Holy Spirit, then he who began a good work in you will complete it. And in the end, you will overcome. You will confess Christ even to the death. You can count on it. God will sustain you, so don't worry about it. And the overcomers get even more than eternal life. And this is remarkable, but verse 7 says that these people don't just get to live together forever, which would be a wonderful thing, but they're also going to inherit all things, everything. And again, there's a whole background to this idea. It goes right back to Romans and Galatians and the whole teaching of sonship, where it's revealed there uh, that right now in the present, uh, you know, this whole creation is groaning in pain. But then he says sonship is coming. It's called adoption in our Bibles. It refers to the time when we come to our full adult standing and as full adults in the household, we become heirs to everything. We possess it. The Bible teaches that when the Holy Spirit indwelled us, we got the down payment for that. So we know we are God's children when we get the down payment. And we know that the rest is coming. So one of these days, we're going to get the whole thing in God's new creation. You can see in these two verses, the culmination of everything against the backdrop of scriptural promises to us. So it's no wonder that Alexander White, the Scottish preacher from the 19th century, while musing on these things, made the comment, what will it be like to be there? And then, so reflectively, he added, and what will it be like not to be there? That's the question we must face today. And you have to face it because in verse 8, there are non-citizens. There are the cowardly. That is a reference to the fearful. It's talking about those who are afraid to confess Christ in the face of persecution. It's the fearful. It's the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I want to be very pointed at this point. This is not popular preaching. Uh, preaching, uh, But I, I want you to understand something this morning, to understand nothing else, that nobody, nobody gets to heaven unless they are born again. You are not going to get to heaven by being baptized. 
You're not going to get to heaven by attending church from time to time. It takes a supernatural birth from God. And if you don't think that you really want that, because you don't like the commitment that comes with it, all right, then you need to call on God to give you the faith, to believe, to accept, to call on Him. If you do that, He promises He will give you a new birth. That is the only thing that gives you citizenship in the new creation. But if you refuse the offer of God to save you, then you too have a place reserved in a lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. And I want to assure you that is not symbolic language. There is a fire, a whole lake of it. It's popular among preaching today to ignore the reality of hell and deny its existence. But let me tell you something, that doesn't make it any less real. So this morning, you may be part of God's new creation, or you may be left outside. But I think it's important that we take stock of where we are by asking ourselves this question, what am I thirsting for? What am I hungry for? What am I fixing my faith on? And am I truly overcoming when persecutions and trials come my way? May God help all of us to be overcomers of all of our fleshly desires. And may He help us to really give ourselves to Him, to really thirst for those things that deeply, truly, lastingly, eternally satisfy. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this glimpse into the future of what heaven will be like. Thank you, Father, for what you are preparing for us. Those of us who believe, you've prepared a place for us, and we long to be there. We long to shed pain and the sorrow of this life. We long to be free of that old sin nature. We long to be just with in your very presence and with our dear brothers and sisters in that perfect state, fellowship around your throne forever. Father, give us a longing for that that changes how we live today. May we do whatever we can to bring as many with us as is possible. In Jesus' sake we pray.